Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your hosts, Rick Lawrence and Becky Hodges, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hi, listeners. This is Season 2, Episode 11, brought to you by Lifetree at JesusCenteredLife.com. And today, we're going to be talking about how do you actually grow? I mean, how is it that we actually move from one place of growth to a new place of growth, especially in our relationship with Jesus? How does growth actually happen? Uh, and so I think this is going to be a, a fascinating conversation because some of our assumptions about growth and how it happens um, are the very reasons why so many of us don't grow, <laughs> because we think growth requires blank, and because we're not interested or don't have the energy for or the discipline for blank, we stay in the same place that, we're, that we are, even though we all long to grow. So we're going to have a conversation today about growth from the perspective of how Jesus sees growth, how Jesus seeded growth in people, um, how did people actually change after coming into contact with him, what was it that happened? And we're going to kind of get at that through our own story, and then we're going to uh, do something that's very practical that could help you to um, have a, a mental picture of, of how this can work in your own life as well. So um, my name is Rick Lawrence. Um, I'm the general editor of the Jesus-Centered Bible and author of The Jesus-Centered Life, and I'm here today with my partner in crime, the Becky Nader, Becky Hodges. Hello. Um, our our uh, uh, technical guy and man of many, many talents, Adam, um, asked us before we started today, are you both really seriously through being sick? Because... The last episode, there was a whole lot of coughing into the microphone. That was me. (laughs) Yeah, that was Becky. And Becky also said that it appeared that I might be literally losing my voice by the end of the podcast, but I just think it was gravelly. We're much better now. Yeah. So we're back in the the saddle and uh, ready to talk about this issue. And I thought one way to get into this is maybe Becky and I could both share something from our life that that was a uh, sort of an example of growth. And for me, it was, uh, I think it was about three years ago now that I lost 45 pounds. So here's an example of how, so everybody would like to get in better shape. Everybody wants to lose weight. Everyone wants to be more fit. We all know that we need to eat better and all this kind of stuff. I have a very fit wife. She, she eats very nutritionally. She cooks very well. She, she really, really wanted me to lose weight for many years. And um, I would put some effort into it. I mean, we belong to a health club and, you know, but I just didn't lose any weight. I just stayed the same for the most part. I, I'm like everyone else. I just stayed the same. So how is it that three years ago I lost 45 pounds? Now, right now should be the commercial plug for whatever the system <laughs> is that you're supposed to work. But I didn't have a system. We're all waiting. Yeah. What Ooh, was what it, could Rick? It be? Tell us. So, so I, I think it's so instructive for this greater conversation about how do we actually change. So I saw at the health club that they had this little competition that was a six-week competition that if you entered it and, and won, you'd get a family membership at the health club for a year, which would have been a, a significant thing for our family. And I thought, wow, 
it takes me, let me calculate this, because I speak and I write also. So things like our health club membership come from whatever I'm able to speak or write, I, we pay for our health club membership out of that. So I thought, oh, how many speaking engagements and how, what would I have to write? Hey, if I could enter this contest and win, this would be huge. So I, I didn't tell anyone. I just started thinking about it. And then I found out, I asked somebody at the health club, how many people enter the contest? And they said, uh, well, usually 50, but only like 25 finish. I thought, can I beat 25 other people? I bet I could. So I, I cautiously told my family at dinner one night, hey, I'm thinking about entering this contest. And they all went, yeah! And I said, um, well, I'm, because I'm going to be going to the health club more often, um, you guys are going to have to pick up the slack of some things that I normally do. Are you up for that? Yeah! So I, it, so getting, losing weight is not just about going to the health club more often. It's changing your diet. So I asked my wife, how should I change my diet? I'll do everything you tell me to for six weeks. <laughs> so, she was probably elated. Oh, she was. Finally. That's right. So I changed my diet in those six weeks. I just started eating much healthier food. I cut out a lot of bread and cheese and things like that. Um, a lot of bread. I just stopped eating pizza and sandwiches and things like that. But I started eating health, more healthy um, and more consistently, and I found out that healthy food actually tastes good, and my body responds better to it. In fact, by the end of the six weeks, I remember the first time I had pizza after that, I got sick to my stomach. It just felt terrible, and it wasn't because of a gluten thing. It was just I just didn't like the unhealthy foods anymore because I had kind of been weaned off of them. And then I, I went to four organized classes a week for those six weeks. And I kind of, the reason why that became consistent is I liked the instructors and I really appreciated them. And I got into a pattern. So I got into a pattern of going to four classes a week. I got into a pattern of eating healthier food and I lost 45 pounds. That's how it happened. But it was really the carrot of something that I really cared about. So it's so sad to admit that I didn't care so much about my own fitness, but I cared about helping my family financially that was the carrot that caused me to want to try this, and I thought I could win. Um, I actually, I didn't even place in the top three. <laughs> even though I lost 45 pounds, I, I just, well, actually, I lost 26 pounds during that six weeks, and then I went on to lose another 20 as I continued with these patterns. So the 26-pound weight loss in six weeks was not enough to get me in the top three. So I didn't win anything other than I established a pattern and I changed my life. To this day, I eat differently, and I, and my fitness regimen is different, and it's because I don't feel like myself if I'm not doing these things. Mm. Like I just ate something for lunch. I told Becky that was really I don't ever <laughs> eat anymore, and it's I feel gross now. It's like that's not me. I don't eat that. So it's now an issue of identity. I see myself this way, so it perpetuates. So Becky, you recently told me about an experience. I, I had told Becky about this book. A Failure of Nerve by Edwin Friedman that is a life-changing kind of book. It's not. It's written by a guy who's now deceased, and he was a rabbi and a business consultant and a, and a diplomat, all kinds of things in his life. Um, and this is sort of his masterwork on um, a failure of nerve refers to leaders who lack nerve, and he pinpoints this as the problem in the leadership strata of our culture. And so it's, it's, it's really a book about self-differentiation. Where do I start and you, where do I end and you start? Um, 
And so I, I tell people a lot about this book because everything Edwin Friedman says reminds me of Jesus, um, that Jesus was the most self-differentiated person who ever lived, and you can see his catalytic influence in people's lives because of it. So I'm reading Edwin Friedman's book, and I'm seeing Jesus everywhere. So I tell a lot of people about this book. Well, uh, Becky heard me talk about it enough that she decided to get it and read it, which is, by the way, one of the first little baby steps toward growth is to, when you listen to something and it has promise for something, that you actually follow through, you do something about it. Um, so Becky did, and then it led to some life change. And so, let, Becky, why don't you tell your story about this? So actually, I have to I have to modify your story. Oh, good. This is actually what happened, is that if you've been listening to this podcast for any amount of time, if you've read Jesus-Centered Life, and if you've had any interaction with Jesus-Centered Bible, you know how brilliant Rick Lawrence is. Oh, my goodness. Don't modify it so this way. So when he one time mentioned to me, this is exactly what he said. He said, Becky, there's this book, and it's called A Failure of Nerve, and um. I, I'm going to tell you something. I tell people to get this book all the time. And I would say that 10% of them follow through and actually get this book and read it. And so in my mind, this is what, this is what I, I this is what my brain said. Challenge accepted. Uh. <laughs> Challenge accepted. Um, and it's not a quick read. It actually took me about six months to finish, but it's actually been a really, really good um, book for me personally. I noticed some patterns immediately at, you know, I started reading it and going, hmm, I do this a lot. Um, and this is not very healthy. So one of them is he, you know, the book is called A Failure of Nerve. And one of the ways that he describes nerve is that to, to have real nerve, you have to be in charge of your insecurities, meaning your insecurities they can't rule you and they can't they can't can't be tossed by the winds of them constantly because when you're ruled by your insecurities what you'll have a tendency to do and this is what I did a lot is for one example we said we want to get into podcasting Becky we want you to head up getting us into podcasting and so my first initial response was I need to find someone to be the host of the podcast because clearly I could never do that and you know, then Rick prodded me along to join him on this podcast. But my tendency was always to support people who were um, in front of the scenes and to be behind the scenes because I felt more comfortable there. But but there was a gnawing in that because actually I'm actually pretty good in front of the scenes. But that would require me to have to put myself out there and then and then let all of my insecurities be out in front of everybody. So I read this book and I realized a pattern. And that pattern was that anytime an insecurity came out, I let the insecurity be the ruler instead of having the nerve to put the insecurity where it, it belonged. Um, and I also started to notice a lot of similarities. Like Rick said, we were doing, we had started doing this podcast together. I had started working on, on Jesus centered life with him. And I, I saw Jesus in this, like he had a lot of nerve and he was not, he was not ruled by his insecurities. Uh, he put his insecurities in their proper place. If he had, if he, if he had them at all, I don't know. I'm sure he did. He experienced everything that we did. So well, we should pause there for a second and in, in self-differentiation in, in kind of its core understanding is it's kind of like a healthy cell mm -hmm. so that the healthy cell has a very strong core nucleus and then a strong cell wall. 
And so a healthy person, and Jesus is the quintessential healthy mm-hmm. person, he has a strong core conviction that is built on a foundation of truth, mm-hmm. and the cell wall means the boundary of your identity. He understood where he started and somebody else has started. And, and so often we're in relational situations, we take on, we push past mm-hmm. other people's cell walls, we push into their boundaries, we overfunction for them, they overfunction for us. Mm-hmm. We get our cell walls all messed up, and we get our core nucleus kind of weakened because we cave to other people's um, strong opinions and forces at work. And so it's really, a, a, how do you become a healthy cell is a, is a way of thinking about this. And most of us, I think what, what the Friedman book set, uh, diagnoses is most of us aren't very healthy cells. So h- mm-hmm. how do you get there? So, well, I mean, I for me, this personal journey was just about saying yes one time and then saying yes two times and then saying yes three times. And then now I'm starting to feel more like, more confident in saying yes to bigger challenges. So for me, it was just a journey of saying, recognizing, okay, this is one of those moments where you're feeling insecure. And so your natural inclination inclination is to do this. What if instead you said yes, and you did it (laughs) and it was scary and it was hard, but then it became easier and then an easier. And now it just feels more natural. So and and I think part of the the macro picture here is that the fascination is so we have lots of influences, lots of messages that say this would be good for you if you did blank or you could be more mature if you did blank. And and how does that what's the mechanics of when that happens or when it doesn't happen and we're all we kind of have this sense that there's a silver bullet out there and if we just got hooked into the right system somehow that that would lead to our growth and transformation. And so, and then the, the fact that it's a system scares us. So that's what scared me about getting fit. Like, yeah, I know that you're supposed to eat well and exercise, but the system that that represented was daunting to me. Mm-hmm. And I didn't feel like I had the, the self-discipline to really lean into that. I kind of tricked myself actually into it by saying um, I could help my family financially if I did this which was a goal I was willing to sacrifice for. So uh, so is that a formula? Is that the system everyone should follow? We would like to think so. And yet we, we all have experienced the failure of these systems in ourselves. There's so much founded on our own ability to persevere in those systems. And it's like trying to persevere in the middle of uh, somebody throwing eggs at you. As you're trying to walk from point A to point B, somebody's throwing eggs at you and hitting you in the face and hitting you in the kneecap and you fall down on the ground for a minute and you get back up and you get hit again in the forehead. That's what life feels like sometimes. We're supposed to be going from A to B, but there's a whole lot of stuff thrown at us (laughs) that keeps us from getting there. So uh, we want to talk today about um, what is this Jesus path toward growth and transformation, and does it... Does it necessarily look like that? Is it founded on our ability to try harder to be better people or or understand his biblical principles and then apply them to our life? These are two things that in the Jesus-centered life, I have gone to great lengths to say these two things are fallacies, they're empty promises. The idea that trying harder to get better is the gospel is not true, it's false. And the idea that 
uh, understanding biblical principles and applying them to our lives is the primary way we are transformed and grow in our life is also a fallacy. If you talk to people who've really grown, it doesn't happen that way. It happens another way, and it, uh, and it follows a pattern. It, the, Jesus is all over the board um, with how he helps people grow and transform, but it does follow a kind of pattern. So we're going to start out in a loopy way to get at this. We're going to start out by um, just uh, modeling a, a way of reading the Bible— in, in this case today, we're going to model a way of reading anything about Jesus. So any of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or, or John, um, a, a way of reading Scripture when, you're, when it's focused on Jesus that first can help us unlock his heart. So I call this uh, asking the Oprah question. We've mentioned this before on this podcast. The Oprah question is uh, adapted from Oprah Winfrey's fantastic interview question, which is, What's one thing you know for sure? That that question was so powerful, she wrote a whole book of her uh, interviews with celebrities and what she has learned for sure about life. Um, it was always the back page feature in her magazine and the last thing on her TV show. She would ask a celebrity, what's one thing you know for sure? I love the for sure part of that. So I morphed it into this thing called asking the Oprah question, which is actually a chapter in Jesus-centered life, how to ask the Oprah question all the time when you're reading about Jesus. We're going to practice that today. The way it works is you read a chunk of Scripture that's about Jesus, and you stop. You just pause for a minute and ask yourself, what's one thing I know for sure about Jesus based only on this passage? If you do this enough, it goes from being a a practice, you know, a little practice that you try, an experiment that you try, to something more like breathing. It just becomes a natural part of you. You forget that you're asking it. It just becomes embedded in your soul. So what we're going to do is we're going to read a little bit uh, from Matthew 15. We're going to sort of start midstream in Matthew 15. I'm going to have Becky read a little chunk, and then we'll stop, and we'll ask ourselves, what what's one thing we know for sure about Jesus based on that little chunk that you just read? And there might be more than one thing we know about him. We'll just see. So I think where she's going to start reading is uh, uh, like verse 10 in Matthew 15, where Jesus is engaging the Pharisees. They're trying to trap him into something, and he's coming back at him. And he's this is one of the many times where he, he speaks pretty strongly in response to the Pharisees who are trying to trap him. So, Becky, why don't you uh, take, a, take a little chunk here, and then we'll stop and consider the Oprah question. So just before this, like Rick said, the Pharisees have been kind of trying to trap him. And at this point, Jesus turns to the crowd and he actually invites them over um, to, to come and listen to what he's going to say. So, so it says, then Jesus called to the crowd to come and hear. Listen, he said, and try to understand. It's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you. You are defiled by the words that come out of your mouth. Then the disciples came to him and asked, Do you realize you offended the Pharisees by what you just said? Jesus replied, Every plant not planted by my heavenly Father will be uprooted. So ignore them. They are blind guides leading the blind. And if one blind person guides another, they will both fall into a ditch. Then Peter said to Jesus, Explain to us the parable that says people aren't defiled by what they eat. Don't you understand yet? Jesus asked. Anything you eat passes through the stomach and then goes into the sewer. But the words you speak 
come from the heart. That's what defiles you. For from the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual immortality, theft, lying, and slander. These are what defile you. Eating with unwashed hands will never defile you. We're going to stop there. Uh, This was one of those amusing moments of misspeaking that we all have, because Becky just said sexual immortality, which I'm not sure. I'm I'm sorry. It's hard to read sideways because I have to stay on the mic and read with like one eye. But we all know what she meant was sexual immorality, but sexual immortality is an interesting promise, isn't it? So (laughs) I love that. So let's stop for a second. We're going to take that chunk of uh, Jesus's interaction, and we're asking ourselves, what's one thing we know for sure about Jesus based only on this chunk. So anything jump out to you initially, Becky? Well, I thought it was interesting that right in the beginning, he he says, listen, and he also asks them to try to understand. So it's it's clear to me that Jesus understands that this is hard for us to understand, that we have a tendency to think one way about things and that he thinks very differently about them. And he understands that it's not always easy for us to get it right away. Yeah, that's Um, good. I thought that was kind of him to say, try to understand what I'm, I understand that this is hard. So one one thing we know for sure about him is he talks a lot about the kingdom of God and, and the cultures, the culture and values of the kingdom of God. And he's trying to translate those to people. And what you're saying is he understands that it's almost like he's teaching people a foreign language. He understands this is a difficult translation process, and he's aware of it. That's good. The thing that stuck out to me, and he did it in two different ways. First, he tells this—I mean, it's called a parable. It's really like a sentence when he says, it's not what enters the mouth that defiles the person, but what proceeds out of the mouth that Mm -hmm. defiles the person. And then his disciples later say, uh, Jesus, that doesn't sound like— um, like our whole life, which is all our life is about following rules, about what you can and can't do on the outside. It's kind of a management of behavior and a management of sin. It's a whole sin management system mm-hmm. that we're used to. And you just said it's not what goes into our mouth. What are you talking about? We have s- hundreds of rules about what goes into our mouth. Mm-hmm. Um to, in order to keep ourselves righteous and clean, and and Jesus is upending that. So for me, what I know for sure is that Jesus is an inside-out person, not an outside-in person. Mm-hmm. He's saying uh, real growth and change um, happens from the inside out. It's all about the heart. I guess that's another thing you could say for sure about Jesus, is it's all about the heart. When he says, let's see... Oh, for in my translation, I think I have a, I'm, I've got up a different translation. I have, I think, the New American Standard, and you have the preferred New Living Translation up on. But I, in my translation, it says, "For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man." So he's saying that mm-hmm. the heart emanates; it's like a fountain. The, so whatever whatever your heart is, it's going to be producing stuff in your life. It's either going to be good fruit or bad fruit. So really the focus is on the heart. Change the heart and you change the output. So that's one thing we know for sure just based on this chunk. Jesus is all about the heart. So that's a good chunk. The other thing that I noticed, and this actually really, really relates to the failure of nerve, is that he wasn't afraid to offend the Pharisees in what he said. And part of having nerve is 
is knowing that sometimes when you have to say hard things, that you're going to hurt people's feelings, that you're going to offend them. And, but it doesn't mean that you don't say them. You have to sometimes have, you know, hard conversations. And actually tomorrow I'm going to be recording on They Say Podcast, which I haven't been on in a while. And we're going to be, we're going to be talking specifically about having hard conversations. Cause that's, that's one thing that's really hard for women. I think is we don't, we don't like to be in that role particularly, but Jesus wasn't afraid of that. I think it's really good that he, so everything with Jesus is about love. So Mm -hmm. when he says hard things to people, he's not saying hard things to people because he's lost his cool, lost his temper. We know that he's intentionally saying a hard thing to someone because it's best for them. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, um, so you know what, we can just take this little list uh, instead of reading another chunk, we can just take this little list of things and and move to the second part of this that we want to focus on. The first part, uh, asking the Oprah question, is just a way of coming closer to the heart of Jesus. It's a way of focusing on his heart instead of sort of the practical takeaway. I love what you said on last week's podcast, Becky, about the huge shift in your life around reading the Bible was this shift from reading it for what you could get out of it, to reading it to understand and come draw near to the heart of God, that's a very different motivation for how you read the Bible. And in this case, what we're doing by asking the Oprah question is, we're not as concerned about what our takeaway is, we're more interested in, what is his heart up all about? Why would he say or do that? What, what kinds of inclinations does he have, and why does he have those? We're trying to get our, we're trying to draw near to the heart of Jesus because the premise here is that the heart of Jesus is like a black hole in space. It creates such a huge gravitational pull that it draws you closer to it. This is what we talked about last week that the, the heart of Jesus is this heavy mass that has its own gravitational pull, and it, the closer you get, the more it pulls you in. So the Oprah question is a way to orbit a little closer to the heart of Jesus. So if you're confused about, we know we have a lot of different kinds of people that listen to this podcast. We have people in ministry, we have people who have been studying the Bible for their whole life. Some people, they're brand new and they're just curious about who Jesus is. So if you're if you're confused about what the difference is, the difference is if I had read this passage before, here's what my takeaway would have been. It would have been in this little paragraph at the end where he's talking about um, all the things that you're that that all the evil that comes out of your heart. And I would have been making a checklist in my journal of, okay, you should not commit murder. Don't (laughs) commit adultery, um, sexual sexual immorality, immorality. theft. Oh, did I tell a lie? And now I'm like, oh, oh, shoot. I just read lying. Ooh, you know, I kind of said something to my mom that wasn't totally true. Dear Jesus, I'm really sorry. (laughs) That's the difference between applying this scripture to you and, and what we just did. What we just did is we went, we went after what is this say about who Jesus is? And that was a totally different experience. I, I love so that. I just wanted to clarify. I love that clarification. And at the very end in verse 20, um, he says that that long list of things you just mentioned, he says, these are what defile you. So in the first way of reading, we say, uh-oh, Jesus said, these things defile me. I need to get these things out. Yeah, that's what Jesus is telling me. I'm, I'm guilty of these things. 
and they defile me. And he's saying, he's kind of wagging his finger saying, now these things Time defile you. Time for repentance. So <laughs> what we're doing instead is we're approaching this chunk, just as Becky said there, to try to understand what his value system is, what, what, what his heart likes and doesn't like, so that we can draw near to his heart, which will transform us in the way that he's, he's saying these things defile you, but we make the logical leap that what he's asking us to do is try harder to get him out of our life. He's just being diagnostic. Hey, these things defile you, but he's not saying anything yet about how to be transformed so that you don't do those things. He's, he's offering a very different path for that. So the next, the next uh, little step along the way here, um, this is just one example of drawing near to the heart of Jesus by using the Oprah question to do it. There's lots of ways to draw near to the heart of Jesus. Some are experiential. They have nothing to do with reading the Bible. It's just trusting Jesus in the, in the everyday moments of your day, or listening to Jesus more closely, or offering him up decisions you've never offered up before. Those are also ways to draw near to the heart of Jesus. This is one way, the Oprah question. But the the second thing we can do here is start to think about what I call filters as we read Scripture. And the filters are, um, you notice something about a habit pattern that Jesus has, or something that he really loves or likes, or he's always celebrating that thing, or he's always saying, I hate that thing. Um, You start to notice uh, patterns of of uh, filters in him. So one of those things is that we just mentioned is that he's an inside-out person, not an outside-in person, meaning he's, he's all about the heart, not about the show of the heart, right? So let's stop for a second, and Becky and I are just going to think through here, what are some examples of Jesus living this out, this inside-out love that he has. And he kind of doesn't like outside in, and he really loves inside out. So what are some examples of that in Scripture? So we're starting to say, here's a filter. Let's think through when we see that happening with him. So let's think through some some times when we see this pop up. Like, I'm thinking right now about a parable he told about Lazarus and the rich man. And the the rich man lives his whole life just gaining wealth, ignoring the poor, not caring about the things of God at all, but making his own life richer and more comfortable. He, he's, he has all of the trappings of affluence, and then he dies, and the poor man, the poor beggar man, Lazarus, dies, and oh no, it ends up that the rich man um, is in hell, and Lazarus is not. And the rich man is like, hey, how come he's over there? And Jesus essentially says, all you were concerned about was the outside of life, not the cultivation of your heart. You were only concerned about the things of that, that were outside longings for you, and uh, Lazarus, rather, was interested in the cultivation of his interior, in the cultivation of his heart. That's what's separating the two of you right now. So he makes a big kind of shocking parable point about this whole idea of of not worrying so much about the exteriors, but being more concerned about what's interior. So there's an example of him living that out. There's also the woman who gave five pence, and Jesus noticing her because he knew how much that was costing her. Yeah, that's good. And that she really, her heart was to give as much as she possibly could and not about 
the typical, you know, rule of, um, of giving. And also she wasn't very showy about it. Oh, that's, I love that you brought up that example because, so it's such a perfect example of this filter with Jesus because nobody was paying attention to the woman who drops the mite in the in the mm-hmm. public pot because That's what it was. because it's just it's just a tiny little it, 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 the purpose of putting money in the pot for most people was to show everybody how much you were putting in the pot like look at what I'm putting in now and she puts in next to nothing so she's of no notice mm-hmm. in that value system but what Jesus recognizes is past the exterior to the heart. That's mm-hmm. what you're saying there is that she was all in. She gave everything she had. He's he's valuing a heart attitude about going all in. He doesn't care about the externals. That who gave more than who. I feel like there's it's there's also the example of the Canaanite woman because on the outside she doesn't look like someone who is a fearless follower of God, but she actually showed such tenacious trust in who he was that he was impressed by that and i think we've talked about this yeah, that's example. actually the next section of matthew 15 that we didn't read it's 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 this it's i've said before it's my favorite story in the new testament of this woman who wants her daughter healed of a demon and uh the disciples are sick of her screaming about it as they're traveling to another village and they beg jesus to stop her and he turns and faces her and says what do you want and she says i i want the, my daughter to be released from this demon who's tormenting her, and he says, uh, uh, I've come for the children of Israel, not for dogs like you. Mm-hmm. And the tenacious you're talking about there is her response. Yep. This marginalized woman who's just been called a dog by Jesus says, even the dogs get the crumbs off the master's table. So what is he looking for? He's looking for something to come from her insides out. Well, she had a lot of nerve. I mean, I could, yeah. I kind of, I kind of see her like standing up really tall. Yes. You know, when you're about to like just be really firm about something, and she just was maybe stamped her foot a little bit, <laughs> and yeah. was like, "I know who you are." <laughs> yeah. And 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 kind of, I'm not leaving Jesus. You can call me whatever you want, but I want my daughter healed. There's something about what comes out of her that Jesus celebrates. So there's this outer thing about she's not supposed to even be talked to as a marginalized Canaanite woman. So there's the externals. Even the disciples aren't that shocked that Jesus spoke to her that way, because everybody speaks to marginalized people that way in that culture. So they're not that shocked. What's shocking is how he celebrates what comes out of her next, which is, whoa, woman, your daughter's healed right away. That is amazing what came out of you. So Jesus, another great example of of this filter, Jesus loves the interior. He loves the heart and what comes from the heart. He's also diagnostic about the the rotten things that come from the heart, but it's all about the heart. It's an inside-out preference in, in these interactions that Jesus has with everyone. So the way that this works as a filter is once you've done it, like we just did it with four little stories, you start to think this way, huh? Jesus interacted with people always drawing, paying attention to the heart, not the exterior. Paying attention to the heart, not the exterior. Where do I see that? And pretty soon it becomes a dominant filter as you read, and you see it happening everywhere. And what it does is it, again, it it's a, like a magnet to his heart. You start to see what his heart's like and how it interacts in these wide variety of situations, but it's always about the heart. 
And and just so you know, we we didn't have any preparation for what we just did. <laughs> yeah. Sorry if you thought that we were really on top of it here, but um, I had no idea what we were going to be reading. Um, Rick kind of decided like five minutes before we started recording what we were going to be reading. So this isn't like, oh, you have to be a Bible scholar in order to do this. This is really just about letting the Holy Spirit kind of speak to you. So, you know, when Rick asked what examples I didn't have the, I didn't have a chance to prepare and go through the Bible and find all of the examples I was going to bring up. They just kind of just, God just kind of put them on my heart. And I said some of the wrong words like Pence versus mites, but that that's not that's not the point. So you don't have to be a Bible scholar to to read the Bible like this. You can just do it with the Holy Spirit or with friends um, on your own. So I love so much what you just said because it's so important. the the What is the job description of the Holy Spirit? It's it's the Spirit of Jesus living in us, mm-hmm. and the job description of the Holy Spirit is to help us to understand everything about Jesus. The Holy Spirit is a intimate partner with with us in all this. And so as we read, we're not just trying to brainstorm and and rack our brain for, hey, what's what's one thing I know for sure about Jesus here? Oh, what's the filter I could pick out here of something that is common in the way that Jesus leans into relationships? No, we're dependent on the Spirit. We're asking the Spirit kind of under our breath, hey, show me, show me what's one thing is really true about Jesus. Help me understand what his filters are. Help me understand. It's this conversation that happens as you read that happens almost in the in the background of everything you're doing. So you're getting help and assistance along the way. I can't emphasize this enough. This is not a rhetorical thing. It's not a, oh, we should all depend on the Holy Spirit. It's a practical reality. The Holy Spirit is real. He's living in you, and he wants to help. The only prerequisite there is, is that we ask for help. That's it. Yep. That's the only prerequisite. Ask for help, and he'll help you. So this, this, so I said that we would be talking about life transformation and growth. Yep. And here we are, you know, spending time trying to understand the heart of Jesus. Well, that's very much on purpose. So let me throw out to you um, something that is uh, sort of central to my book, The Jesus-Centered Life. That was a revelation to me when my friend Ned told this to me. Um, <clears throat> Ned is a worship leader. I was about to be a guest preacher at my church, so we had to get together to talk about what we were going to do in the service, and at the end of it, we had a really great first meeting. I really loved Ned. I loved his heart, and at the end of it, he said, you know, Rick, I love your heart. Um, I'd love to share with you this formula for, for growth that I think is really true, and I said, oh, Ned, <laughs> I hate formulas. Um and he said, well, it's not really a formula, it's more like a progression. What he was really saying is, this is how things work. This is just true. It's not a recipe or formula you have to work at. It's just true. It's something like gravity, that it's describing gravity. So he called this the progression, and here's how it goes. Get to know Jesus well, because the more you know him, the more you'll love him. And the more you love him, the more you'll want to follow him. And the more you follow him the more you'll become like him. And the more you become like him, the more you become yourself. So it's that last line I never saw coming. And essentially the progression means draw near to Jesus, get closer to him, 
because the closer you get to him, the more you'll fall in love with his heart. And the more you fall in love with his heart, this is just so true. It starts to motivate your behavior because you're falling in love with his heart. You just want to follow him. You're drawn to him. You're attracted to him. We like to follow people that we're attracted to, (laughs) whether that's on Facebook or Twitter or a TV show. We're drawn to people, so we like to follow them. And so once we start following him, we actually become more like him as we follow him. And then the more we become like him, the more we become ourselves. So this is actually a uh, sort of the, the path to becoming a disciple, and discipleship is really about growth and transformation. What really is discipleship? In the, the ancient times, if you wanted to attach yourself to a rabbi and later become a rabbi, the process was that you had to chase after a rabbi you were interested in, that you were drawn to, attracted to, as a young person, and you had to convince them to take you on. And if they agreed to take you on, here's what happened then. You left your home. You're like a teenager. You left your home, and you went to live with the rabbi, and that was it. You never lived at home again. And it wasn't just that you went and listened to the rabbi's Sunday school speech um, 60 minutes, uh, three times a week. You lived with the rabbi. And the purpose of that was to learn to think like the rabbi, to kind of let the heart of that rabbi spill into your heart, to walk like the rabbi, to, to develop tastes that were similar to that rabbi. You, you immersed yourself in that rabbi's life so that, so that your lives commingled, and that's how new rabbis were developed. That was the system, so to speak. So Jesus is really just an extension of that whole rabbi system. He's saying, come immerse yourself in me. Let my every thought, my inclinations, my habit patterns, my reactions to things start to seep into you, and then you become more like me. But here's the great thing. As you become more like Jesus, you actually become more yourself. So Becky and I were talking earlier today about some of the transformation things that have happened in her because of a failure of nerve, and I realized as she was talking about some of the things she was now doing that typically when we think about growth, we think, okay, I've attached this skill Mm -hmm. or I've attached this new ability to myself. I've kind of uh, bolted it onto myself now. And it's, a, it's an adding to ourselves when we think about growth. But if you think about what the progression is all about and what we just did by drawing near to the heart of Jesus, as we draw near to the heart of Jesus, what he does is he reveals our heart. He reveals um, our wholeness, our entirety. I said to Becky, you know, what he's really doing here, he's not adding, you're not adding a new skill to your life. He's, Jesus is revealing more of Becky. So as you get more uh, what you might call assertive or aware of your boundaries or not taking on other people's responsibilities and instead letting them struggle with their responsibility some, that's not a new skill. That's a revelation of Becky. That is who you were meant to be, and he's revealing more of that. Well, he's setting you free from things. You know, a lot of this... Um, has been about putting things off that actually hinder me instead of like what Rick was saying, putting more stuff on top of me. Because as human beings, we are just already overwhelmed with the amount of things that are on put on us. When Jesus is doing something, he's usually setting you free from something. Um, in fact, our friend Sarah Bessie, she wrote a 
great post this week and she calls it So I Quit Drinking. And it's really, it's about her deciding to not drink alcohol anymore and why. But really what the, what the heart of her article is about is about Jesus setting her free from something. So yeah, I think... It's, it's not a outside-in discipline of, I've decided to discipline my way out of drinking anything. It's more of an interior change of heart that leads to the fruit of her deciding not to... I don't need this in my life. Yeah. And that's what's so important. It's the inside-out change. It's, it's almost like if you change the source of the well so that the well water is different, it's not poisoned or toxic anymore, then you can drink and drink and drink from the well, and, you, and it brings health and growth. So Jesus is interested in getting to the source of the well. That's why he offers the woman at the well living water. He says if you took the living water, it, you know, it goes on forever. You'll never thirst again. So he's trying to say, don't, don't just be concerned about every day getting more water. What if you changed it so that one drink would be all you ever needed because it's coming from inside? It's welling up from inside. So this idea that change and growth happens when our heart changes, Mm -hmm. and that progression starts as we get closer to Jesus and get captured by his heart, then the fruit starts to happen, and it results in transformation. What it means is that, for in Becky's case, she read a book that I, I mentioned, her heart is being transformed. She sees Jesus in this book. She, she finds new pathways to walk in an exploration of her identity. She finds new ways to walk that are revelatory and freeing fr- herself from previous captivity. So she walks them, and th- this is the energy and life of transformation in her. So it's not that you never need discipline or you never you never need to work at things, but the discipline and work is the fruit of something changing in your heart. It's an inside-out thing rather than an outside-in thing. So I hope that uh, today you, we've given you a kind of a, a path that you can begin begin to walk if you're if you're not already. It starts with getting near to the heart of Jesus first, and then as you do, you're transformed, and out of that comes fruit. And then you start to find pathways to walk differently in your life. And the more you know, the more your mind is transformed by the things that you now know, you're now accountable to those things. Hey, I know that I'm not supposed to over-function for other people. That's part of my heart now. My heart's been changed. So now I'm accountable to that. So that's how that's how all of this works. And by the way, we're trying to get Sarah Bessie on a, on a podcast in a couple of weeks, two or, three, two or three weeks, so we'll see if that works out. It would be fantastic to have her. So if you're listening to this right now, just send a note to Sarah Bessie. Yeah. Say, yeah, get you on the paying. You should really come on the Paying yeah, Ridiculous yeah, to you should, Jesus podcast. Yeah, because you'd love it. So, And we love you. Thank you for listening. Uh, we don't take it lightly that you listen, listen to these every week. Or if it's your first time, welcome. We're so glad you came. Please go back uh, on the Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus podcast page. Go back and listen to some other a previous podcast that might interest you to kind of get the feel of what this is about. But either way, we're so grateful that you spent this time with us. And you can find out more information about the things we just talked about, but maybe in further detail with links to resources and so forth on the JesusCenteredLife.com. And you can find the podcast section there, and you're going to be looking, if you want this one, you're going to be looking for Season 2, Episode 11. This is, again, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from Lifetree. 
You can subscribe to us on iTunes for all of the latest podcasts. And we will be talking to you next week. Bye. Bye.